welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic, and it's officially NBA Draft Week here over on the Game Theory Podcast and in the NBA. And we started NBA Draft Week with about as big of a swing of a deal as you can imagine. Bradley Beal is going from the Washington Wizards, finally departing the nation's capital and going to the Phoenix Suns in a deal that is dumbfounding in a number of different ways, uh, but ultimately makes some sense if you know the context behind each of their situations. We'll talk about that. Originally, what our plan was for this podcast was to do, who are our guys? Adam, who are you guys in this 2023 NBA draft? I got a lot of guys, Sam, and I know we're going to talk about them in, in great detail later tonight, but more than anything, like you're my guy. This has been such a fun year podcasting with you and doing all this stuff so as we're getting here into the final week like i got a lot of guys on that end i want to make sure you know you're my guy yeah adam you're my guy too but we're going to talk about some draft prospects in terms of the guys that we really enjoy talking about and really think uh, are undervalued in some way shape or form and then we're also going to talk about nba draft disagreements that we have this year as well so guys that we have very different grades on uh, in some way, shape, or form, possibly guys that we have dif- in different tiers near the top of the draft. And then, uh, for instance, somebody like Jalen Wilson lower in the draft, who I quite like as a second-round pick, but Adam is not enthusiastic about. Then we'll do a quick question-and-answer section at the end and talk about all of the things that are happening in the NBA draft. Any questions that you guys have and that you want answered? We'll talk about them, and we'll go from there. Okay. Adam. Bradley Beal is going to the Phoenix Suns for Chris Paul, who got his contract guaranteed up to like 25 or so million, I would guess. There's still a number of different things happening. Let's just be clear about this from the jump. This Deal is agreed to in principle, but the structure of it is still a bit amorphous. Like Josh Robbins, my colleague over at The Athletic, just noted that it seems like Jordan Goodwin is going to be included in this deal from Washington to Phoenix. I think there are still a number of things to play out there. And in part, there are a number of things to play out because Chris Paul probably is not long for the Washington Wizards, it seems like, based off of reporting from Chris Haynes over Yahoo. So when we talk about this, it's a bit amorphous, but the structure it seems like is going to be Bradley Beal and Jordan Goodwin for Chris Paul, Landry Shamit, some second round picks and a couple of pick swaps maybe will be in the mix there. When you saw the structure of this deal, what was your immediate response? So the first thing that always comes to mind for me whenever I see the term pick swaps is do these actually have value? Like, is it going to be important someday for the Washington Wizards to receive the rights to trade those picks around with Phoenix and flipping the order? And the answer for me is right off the bat, kind of no. Like the way that the Phoenix Suns are gearing up as a franchise right now is to be heavily, heavily competitive. And if that's the case, Washington should always be beneath them in the standings, meaning having preferential draft pick anyway. What does a draft swap actually accomplish for the Wizards? So with that context, yes, it feels very light in terms of what the return is asset-wise for Bradley Beal. 
but it's worth noting and understanding the size of his contract and the middling nature of where the Washington Wizards have been for much of the last four to five years. Sometimes the best advantage you can gain, I don't want to call it an asset, but the, the best thing for your organization can be losing one of those contracts, having a little bit more flexibility and breathing room long-term. I think that's definitely what the Washington Wizards are going for, but on its face, in order to to create that type of space and flexibility, they probably took back a lot less on-court value than they probably could have gotten from Beal elsewhere. I think that's right. I think that this is a deal where Phoenix did not give up a ton of value. Like Chris Paul is good. It's just that you can't really trust Chris Paul to stay healthy at this point in the playoffs anymore, which makes it really tricky when you're trying to determine his value on the open market. I think that if I was a Wizards fan, I wouldn't be mad about this deal in a vacuum. I would be mad about all of the decision-making that led to this deal. Even before you and I were podcasting together, when Matt Penny was on the show, there is a chance that like Coles Wicker has been working for the Rockets for, I think like two or three years now, there's a chance that I've talked about this with Cole on this podcast before about the fact that I think the Wizards should trade Bradley Beal. They should have traded him so long ago. They should have moved him on. They had no real pathway to actually competing at any real point here over the last few years. I'm sorry. They just didn't. And all that you did by hanging on to Bradley Beal is you just extended this runway of mediocrity before you eventually were always going to have to rebuild. And I think that's what would make me very angry. The other piece that would make me angry is the fact that they gave Bradley Beal a no trade clause. Yes. More than the salary, I think that is what diminished his trade value. Teams across the league are like petrified of what this new collective bargaining agreement will do for salaries moving forward and for middling stars, acquiring guys that are, somewhere between the 20th and 40th best players in the league that are paid like stars. And I would say Bradley is somewhere in that like 25 to 35 range personally, probably maybe 20 to 30, something like that. I think he's a really terrific player who wouldn't surprise me if he made an all NBA team next year. Uh, He is a genuinely great. Awesome. Actually, I'd be surprised if he made an all NBA team next year. I guess I shouldn't say that, Um, but we'll, we'll talk about the fit momentarily. Teams are worried about paying those guys max deals. I think they're probably a bit aggressive in terms of that concern right now, given the way that the salary cap is going to skyrocket moving forward once this new television deal comes in. I think that there is some real likelihood that we look back and we think that this was a bit of an overcorrection on the front of teams this off season. Plus it seems like there wasn't really a great market. If you look at the reporting out of Miami, it seems like Miami did not necessarily put forward like an awesome offer throughout the course of this process. The reporting has been from folks down there from Barry Jackson to whoever you want to say 
they did not want to put Bradley or they did not want to put Tyler Hero on the table for Bradley Beal. And on top of it, if you're not putting Tyler Hero on the table, you're putting Kyle Lowry on the table. And if you're putting Kyle Lowry and not putting Tyler Hero on the table, really the only way the Miami Heat can get there in terms of salary at that point is by either offering Victor Oladipo, which works financially, or by offering Duncan Robinson. And it seems like the Heat probably wanted to offer Duncan Robinson in that deal, who is three years left and does not give the Wizards the kind of salary flexibility that acquiring Chris Paul and Landry Shamit does. So if that's the case, even if Miami was offering like pick 18 in this draft, along with Duncan Robinson and Kyle Lowry, I actually do think that the Suns deal, if you're Washington and you're trying to bottom out while, while clearing your books entirely, I think there is like a pretty real case that this deal could be perceived as better at the end of the day. But my, my overarching point here is simply that the Wizards waited way too long yeah. on a Bradley Beal decision. And that comes down to Ted Leonsis wanting to contend, wanting to compete, and continuing to work with Mark Bartlestein, uh, Bradley Beal's agent, to make Bradley one of the highest paid players in the NBA, even at times where it was not necessary to do so. Like, he signed a two-year extension. Like, why would you give Bradley Beal that extra two-year extension? I, I just... to me, that's the fatal flaw in there in what happened with the wizards. And now we're at a point where the wizards are going to have to completely tear this thing down to studs. And they're going to have to do so after the 2023 draft, which is considered very good in leading into a 2024 draft, which is not considered very good and leading into a 2025 draft, which might be pretty good. It depends on, you know, so Cooper flag is age eligible to reclassify into 2024 and potentially be eligible for the 2025 draft. I don't know if he's going to do that or not. We will see, but if Cooper flag reclassifies, that could be a thing, right? Like that could actually create some value in the 2025 draft, but you're doing it before the 2024 draft. And that's like an enormous issue because that draft is not very good. Yeah, it's precarious timing, to say the least, right? And it it feels like the Wizards hung on at least one season, if not two, far too long onto this experiment. Three! Three or four! Perhaps, perhaps. And beyond that, the the no-trade clause is an absolute killer because it shrunk the market for the teams that they could extract value from, put a lot of power in Bradley Beal's hands, and that's where... You know, I think Wizards fans have continued to be frustrated the last few years as they've seen this moment coming. They've known that this was kind of the inevitable outcome for the the decisions that have been made by the front office and ownership to continue going down this path and continuing to to pay and try to go 500 with Bradley Beal. It's going to be an even more painful rebuild, though, because of the timing of when they started this thing and how deep down they're going to have to go to to bare bones and gut this operation. They don't have a ton of immediately valuable assets. The eighth overall pick in this draft is one of those. Who knows what this is going to mean for Kyle Kuzma, Kristaps Porzingis, heading into the summer, two of the bigger guys that are rumored to potentially be leaving Washington. They've got a lot of work to do just to lay the foundation for a rebuild. I think a lot of times we take that part for granted in when is this decision going to be made? 
Do we have young guys on the roster? Are we getting back the type of draft equity that is going to allow us to have more bites at the apple of building our next championship core? And the Wizards are really starting this without any of these at all. You're uh, muted there, I believe, my friend. So Gavin Smith in the YouTube comments asks, should they get rid of the no trade clause in the new CBA? Uh, I mean, uh, no reason. I don't think there's a reason to like actually change that. I just wouldn't give them to players like Bradley Beal, I guess, is the thing who, again, like somewhere between the 20th and 30th best, best player in the league, right? That, that's just not who you give that clause to. And ultimately, like, that's where I think, again, the ultimate issue was. I've seen a lot of Wizards fans be frustrated with the idea that, like, oh, my God, Mark Bartlestein is – Bradley Beal's agent and his son Josh is the CEO of the Phoenix Suns and this is collusion and oh my god the thing that you should be mad about is that Ted Leonsis worked with Mark Bartlestein in the first place to give Bradley Beal a no trade clause this has nothing to do with like Josh Bartlestein who I frankly don't even know how involved he is in basketball operations with the Phoenix Suns right now. Like this has nothing to do with that. This has to do with the fact that Mark Bartlestein held all of the cards over the wizards because they continued to put all of their stock into Bradley Beal and thus was able to negotiate a situation that drastically advantaged Bradley Beal Whenever he decided he wanted to move on. Oh, by the way, Bradley Beal's going to make $400 million in his career. I don't know, man. I, I can't hate. I can't hate any of this. Get like, back. I think it's a completely ridiculous argument to be like, oh, my Lord. I mean, how this is so collusive between the two parts. No, like. There's so much of like, this is just so silly. The, the original problem here is the no trade clause in the first place. That's and, the issue. And, and then Phoenix had to have a desirable roster and situation for Bradley Beal to want to waive his no trade clause for, and the ability to match that salary, which at its size, like not many teams are going to be able to do that while providing a good situation for Beal to want to go to and the flexibility the Wizards would need to clear that money off the book sooner rather than later. Like, this is one of the few situations in the league where this could have worked. It's not collusion. Yeah, no, it's not. It's, it's truly not. Um, Dirty Dancer in the YouTube comments says, Beal got his money but wasted a decent amount of his prime. Bradley Beal got $400 million and now gets to go play for one of the best teams in the league in Phoenix. I think he won. <laughs> <laughs> just straight up i think that dude won in this circumstance let's talk about about the beal fit in phoenix because i think that's ultimately the most important piece of this right i've seen a lot of questions about oh my god like their team mid-range gunner now their team uh this their team that look it's gonna be a lot of that because kevin durant devin booker bradley beal they love to operate in those areas I've seen some questions about like, Oh, like what's the ball movement going to look like? How are they going to be able to get shots for these guys? To me, 
what this deal was about more than anything else, even more than acquiring Bradley Beal on some level. I think this deal was about putting the ball in Devin Booker's hands as essentially being the lead initiator on the team. Straight up. When Chris Paul was there, it wasn't really something they could do. Chris Paul was on the ball all the time. And you look at the moments where the Suns have looked the best, I think, over this little cycle since they've had Kevin Durant. To me, it's when Devin Booker has been the point guard, has been the initiator, has been the guy that runs the show. I think that's what this is about more than anything. And now you've Bradley Beal's a trip, tremendous off-ball scorer, Kevin Durant, who's a tremendous off-ball scorer. You maintain DeAndre Ayton. We'll talk about him momentarily. I think that that's the key of this more than anything else. You've moved Devin Booker into the role you want Devin Booker to be in. Well, I think for me, it's about terminology in a lot of this, right? Like, I don't think any of these guys are point guards, but all of them are capable of running an offense with the ball in their hands in some regard. Booker and Durant more so than Beal, but both of them can be elite in that level. The Suns as a team don't need a point guard, somebody to orchestrate the offense with the ball in their hands time and time again when they have Durant and Booker on the roster. So continuing to double down on guys who can space the floor off ball, be really good scorers in different areas and territories, it's a smart gamble by the Suns front office from a basketball perspective. But the flip side of the coin is investing so much money in getting one more star player on this roster, and particularly with Beal's contract, it limits the amount of flexibility and options you have elsewhere to build. And I know you know, Bobby Marks at ESPN was tweeting something a little bit earlier about how the, the only modes they really have for the rest of the roster are minimum contracts and then the bird rights to, I believe, Jock Landale and Torrey Craig. Like This is going to be a lot of veteran guys or shrewd signings on the margins from their front office who fill in the rest of this roster. And when you have this much overlap, I don't want to call it redundancy because they're all really good scorers and do so many different things. But when there's this much overlap between the things that your three-star players do well, you have to be able to hit on finding balance with the rest of the roster. And it's just going to feel very incomplete until we know what James Jones and his front office does to bring in the right guys and the right veteran role players around this core. I think that's right. Just really briefly, I brought up the idea of the fact that I think their best moments have been when Devin Booker is kind of running the show. So I pulled up on playbyplaystats.com what the offensive ratings have looked like with Devin Booker, without Chris Paul, without campaign, basically. Like, just trying to grab some numbers here. So... Devin Booker without Chris Paul on the court, they've had a 121 offensive rating. When Devin Booker and Chris Paul are on the court, it's been a 119 offensive rating. When Devin Booker and campaign are on the court without Chris Paul, it's a 120.7 offensive rating. When Devin Booker is on the court without Chris Paul or campaign, so when he is straight up running the show, they did this for 260 minutes this year, so small sample. But what do you think their offensive rating is in the moments where it's Devin Booker without a point guard, essentially? Uh, I'm guessing probably 125. It's 125. 
That's dead on. So I really think that the big thing here is that they're putting the ball in Devin Booker's hands. Devin Booker's become a complete elite offensive player across the board. He is a top 10 player in the league. I think I'm at that point now. And anytime that you have two top 10 players in the league and Kevin Durant and Devin Booker, you're in a good spot. Uh, The other thing that I think is worth noting for Bradley Beal now is I think we all know that Bradley Beal is like a genuinely great shooter. It's just that Bradley Beal has like not gotten an opportunity to get many open shots over the last couple of years. He is always truly just blanketed offensively because he is the guy that opposing teams tried to shut down every night. He's now the third option. Yep. Like your best guard defender is going to Devin Booker every night, which means Bradley Beal is your second, second option that you're trying to shut down. That's going to lead to more open shots for Bradley Beal. Instead of Bradley Beal having to be the on ball creator out of ball screens, you're going to get more Bradley Beal catch and shoot opportunities. Bradley Beal's going to shoot 40% from three this year, I think. Just because the shot distribution is going to change, right? Well, yeah, and I'm just sick of watching Bradley Beal in blind pig action because it's so easy to face guard him within the Wizards offense. Like It feels like it's been four years in a row where anytime he's away from the ball on the opposite side of the wing, he's just getting a lot of extra attention and coverage because the Wizards don't have many other threats or self-creators on the perimeter. This is going to be huge for Bradley Beal in a lot of different ways. And I think Frank Vogel is the right coach to try to tie a lot of these things together. Really smart and shrewd guy on the offensive end who runs good stuff and a disciplined defensive coach who emphasizes that end enough and gets buy-in from his players. Like I'm sure part of the question about this team is going to be, how do you defend in the backcourt with Beal and Booker playing the one and the two? I think Vogel is the right guy to figure that out. And the Agreed. most the most underrated aspect of this roster construction, Kevin Durant, when he plays the four, is an elite help protector at the rim. And that yeah. gives you a lot of flexibility to do different things on the perimeter, knowing that you always have either Durant or your center to clean up the mess. Quick note on Bradley Beal from Synergy. If you look at Bradley Beal in half-court settings this year. Trivia time for you, Adam Spinella. Another one, all right. How many catch-and-shoot opportunities do you think Bradley Beal had in the half-court this season? How many games did he play, officially? He played 52, 52. according to what I'm looking at, but that is probably including some preseason games. I think for some reason he played 50 regular season games. That number jogs for me. Yeah, it was. So I've adjusted it to 50. Yeah, it's 50 regular season games. Okay, 50 regular season games. I'm going to say 150, about three a game. He took 102 catch-and-shoot opportunities per game. How many jumpers off the dribble did Bradley Beal take in 50 games this season? Oh, 285. He took 314. So essentially, 75.5% of his catch and shoot jumper or of his 75.5% of his jumpers this season were pull-ups versus only 25 catch and shoot opportunities. Oh, by the way, on unguarded catch and shoot opportunities last season, 
Do you know what Bradley Beal shot? Yeah, probably like 50%. He shot 49% on unguarded catch and shoot opportunities in half court settings uh, this year. Do you know what he shot last year? Uh, 47. Yeah, 40.7. So 41% essentially. The year before that, he shot 44% on unguarded catch and shoot opportunities. Uh, the year before that, he shot 38% on unguarded catch and shoot opportunities. If you give Bradley Beal open catch and shoot threes because the gravity of defenders is going toward Kevin Durant and Devin Booker, who are creating offense in a real tangible way, Bradley Beal is going to shoot 40% from three this season. I feel very good about that at this point. And he'll be the secondary playmaker when bench units come in. It's going to be really, really hard, I think, to guard the Phoenix Suns. I think people are way overthinking this on some level. I understand why, and we'll talk about it momentarily. But Bradley Beal's really fucking good at basketball. Yep. Like, you put him in a secondary situation where he's playing off of Kevin Durant, where he's playing off of Devin Booker, He's going to be awesome. He might go like 50, 40, 85 this year while averaging like 22 a game or something. The volume will go down, but the distribution is going to change so much to where it's going to really help him, I think, in terms of his efficiency. Uh, Yeah, the defense is a thing, and I think maybe that's where we go now. Like, I'm somewhat worried about the defense. I am. Truly, I I think that is a very real concern. Frank Vogel is a great defensive coach and should be able to make things work. But Devin Booker's improved defensively. Kevin Durant had an awesome defensive year, especially when he was with Brooklyn last year. The key now is DeAndre Ayton. If you are Phoenix, do you keep DeAndre Ayton knowing that Frank Vogel has this great track record with bigs? Or do you move DeAndre Ayton for depth? I would keep DeAndre Ayton. Uh, I recognize that that might not be the most popular opinion at times, but my sense was that the best way to get the most out of Ayton was to kind of have a fresh start with some of the the voices that might have been around him, right? Uh, and I can at least understand some of this, that you know a new coach is sometimes best for a player doesn't mean that the relationship was flawed with the coach before you but playing for somebody new or somebody different particularly someone with a track record of developing success at your position can re-energize you from an engagement standpoint that sometimes not having one point guard who controls the ball on most possessions and tries to tell you where you need to be breathing every second of your day can help free things up for you to just continue to grow in in different regards. So I think there is going to be a small step forward from DeAndre Ayton this year, just because of some of the changes that are going on around him. If I'm Phoenix, I wouldn't want to get rid of him at this juncture. I'd try to build at least for the start of the season through some of the veterans that you can find while knowing you would have that flexibility by next trade deadline if you absolutely needed to. Yeah, I think the key for me is that I would explore the market for DeAndre. Like if Damian Lillard decides he wants to stay in Portland and they are willing to offer like, I don't know, I don't really think Nurkic is good enough to like center defense in the playoffs. So I I don't know if that works. It's hard to find it. It's hard to find a team. 
it's truly hard to find a team for DeAndre that like truly makes a lot of sense. I mean, like, there's no way we think that like the Knicks would do this, right? I don't think so. I, I think they're probably fine running it back with the crew they have. Yeah, like I, I'm kind of wondering, like, could you do like Isaiah Hartenstein? I, I mean, even then, it gets hard. Like, I, I don't even know, like, what the Knicks would do there, because yeah. like I don't know what they'd be willing to offer at the end of the day for him. Maybe Minnesota could throw a third center in their rotation and play him Towns and oh, Gobert together, right? Come on. Well, so so like, what if Brooke Lopez leaves Milwaukee? I think is like an interesting question, right? Because Brooke Lopez is a free agent. He has the ability to do what he wants to do. But even then, like mm-hmm. Milwaukee's in the same spot they are. They need depth yeah, more than anything. Like you can't do Bobby Portis, you know, Grayson Allen, Pat Connaughton, because then Milwaukee is in the same spot that Phoenix is in currently where you have yeah. Giannis, Chris Middleton, you know, DeAndre Ayton, Drew Holiday and no depth around them. So like, I don't know if that works. Well, and, and Milwaukee couldn't do a sign and trade with Brooke, right? Because trading Brooke away and then taking an Aiden, that would not only hard cap them, but their salary would be they, way too high, right? Yeah. They, well, they can't because of the new CBA. Because Brooke Lopez is a free agent, it's not like you can trade Brooke Lopez before the start of the new year. A big piece of this deal is that it's happening before the start of the new year which allowed the Suns to take on more money actually than what they sent out under the new collective bargaining agreement given the fact the Suns are so far over the cap they would actually not be able to do that they would have had to have thrown in other pieces to be able to make the salary like uh, you can't take on more money than what you uh, send out so signing trades are out of the cap yeah Yeah. signing trades are also out in that circumstance, because again, the collective bargaining agreement made it harder for teams to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the team that I keep coming back to for Aiton, there are two uh, Dallas and Chicago. I mean, Dallas has all of these dudes that are like Maxi Kleba, Davis Bertons, Tim Hardaway Jr. I mean, I, I wouldn't do that if I was. Phoenix, uh, I think that I would rather just have DeAndre and hope the upside yeah. is there. The interesting one is if you could convince Chicago's ownership or in Chicago's front office that they're on the outs and they need to move Pat Williams and Alex Caruso for DeAndre Ayton, which let me be very clear, very clear to Chicago Bulls fans that I would not do this deal. I think this is a bad idea if Nikola Vucevic was to leave. But I'm just saying that I wonder if you could do something like Pat Williams, Caruso, and convince Phoenix to take on Lonzo Ball's money. Oh, that's one I wouldn't touch, Lonzo. Oh, boy. Well, I'm just saying, like, you know, if you think Pat Williams and Caruso are so good that you think that – look, I think you should expect to not get anything out of Lonzo just straight up. Lonzo's in a tough spot right now, it seems like. But if Chicago wanted to get off of that deal and they saw real value in getting off of that deal, is it possible that they would just try to, like, reset like that? Yeah, I don't know. Mm. 
Mm, it's just the clear pathways for an Aiden deal are not presenting themselves right now to me. Not to me either. Uh, I don't think that's a good deal for Chicago. I think that's a really bad idea um, for Chicago. But it's, you know, like maybe Charlotte. I mean, Charlotte, but like Charlotte doesn't have the right mix. I don't think like you'd have to do like Terry Rozier, Cody Martin. Maybe, Maybe you could do like Terry Rozier if you really like Nick Richards, maybe. And like Nick, Nick has become like a pretty useful backup big. Um, but like, I don't think that really works either. So to me, like, I just, uh, you know, like Brian Roby in the comments brings up Claxton's expiring plus Royce and whatever spare pick Brooklyn wants to give up. I mean, that that's a good deal for Phoenix. I just don't know why Brooklyn does that. Yeah, I don't either. Mm. Yeah. And and like the, it's hard because I don't. It's not that I think DeAndre Ayton's a bad player. I think he's actually pretty good. He's good. He's a. Th- this is why you probably just end up rolling with this unless you find a deal that I'm not seeing on the market right now um, that works. It's possible that one is out there. It's possible that you can find one. But yeah, I'm not seeing it right now. Um, do you have anything else on this? I have I think one the, other thing I want to hit on, but yeah. The, the last thing I'd say is the Phoenix Suns do not get to their apex as a championship team next year if they don't have DeAndre Ayton bought into whatever his role will turn into being. And he seems to be a guy who wants a lot of offensive touches from time to time and has struggled when he doesn't get them. I don't know whether that's going to improve on a roster when you probably have three guys that can go out and get 40 on any given night. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So last thing I want to note is that Jordan Goodwin is actually good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Jordan Goodwin was useful. I think I would rather have Jordan Goodwin than Landry Shamit because I think that there is a non-zero chance that Goodwin could be useful in the playoffs. I don't think Landry Shamit can be useful in the playoffs at this point. We've just seen enough. I just kind of want to note that I think he is not a zero piece of this deal. And he signed for two more years, like in a minimum deal. That's like a really helpful acquisition for this Phoenix team for the reasons that you mentioned earlier, like they're pretty limited to minimum contracts at this point. Goodwin is like as good of a minimum contract as you're going to get. Like he's a three to one assist to turnover ratio guy who can play like some point, but mostly off the ball more often than not, but he's a good point of attack defender that I think might be able to help you. Yeah. I, I like what Goodwin was able to do this year for the wizards and he belongs on an NBA roster and right around the fringes of a rotation. So I think that's a solid pickup for Phoenix. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's talk about the 2023 NBA draft. But first, we're going to take a quick commercial break. Hey, Adam. Who are you guys? That's what we're doing here. Oh my God. Who are your guys in the 2023 NBA draft? So 
I've talked about one of my guys for a while now, and I know Sam and I tend to be a little bit split on him. So this should be a fun conversation to dive into a little bit. One of my, well, let's, let's introduce this. So we have this idea of, I wanted to do this in the same podcast because I find it interesting on some level, we're going to do who are our guys and who are our biggest disagreements. And I think that these two conversations kind of mesh a little bit. A lot of the time, Adam and I do have like a couple of guys where we match. Like I think Adam and I are probably the only people that have Kobe Brown is like a late first round grade in the public sphere. Right. Uh, Adam and I have been screaming from the rooftops about Kobe Bufkin for months now about someone that we really love. And it seems like people are just coming around on this now as something that people should be excited about. We also have guys that we disagree on, and I'm sure that Adam is about to start with one, right? So I think these conversations dovetail nicely with one another, and we'll talk through them all as we go through it. Obviously, we try and be more positive than negative on this show, just because that's by nature who Adam and I are. But we disagree, and we'll talk about what our disagreements are, and we also agree on some of our guys. So Adam... Yes. Who is your guy? So great segue. Thank you for doing that. You are a fantastic host of the show. My guy is CD Sissoko from the G League Ignite. He's been my guy ever since doing a full kind of watch through of their season once things concluded in March. This is as much about the theory as it is the game tape in a lot of regards that I look for certain traits in individuals to believe that they are going to maximize their potential and fit in the modern NBA. And I believe that CD Sissoko has several of them. First is his physical frame. He's a bigger guy, really strong chiseled body, which allows him to guard multiple positions. The second thing is the track record of playing with the ball in his hands at prior levels of basketball. The role he filled for the G league ignite this year is not the level or the role that he filled at different levels prior to coming to the G League. And to make that sacrifice and to buy into whatever the team needed, I'm going to be more of an off-ball guy. As an 18-year-old pre-draft coming to a new country halfway across the world, gets me really excited about the potential buy-in to a team construct from a guy like C.D. Sissoko. But I'm equally excited about the skill level that he's going to be able to show. Basketball in the playoffs is very much just about having as many high field processors on the floor as you can, who make the right decision for the team time and time and time again. And while CD Sissoko does have some questionable areas that I know Sam and I are going to talk about for how he functions within a half court offense, I am willing to make the bet on those guys who have shown a really good passing and playmaking skill level at lower levels who grew up with the ball in their hands. And the last thing for me from a characteristic standpoint are hyper competitive dudes. A year ago around this time, I fell in love with Christian Brown for much of the same things. Like that dude was willing to, to talk shit, to get into people's faces, to provide energy to his team, but also do it in a way that was constructive to whatever it was the team needed. Those are winning basketball players in my mind CD Sissoko has an edge to him. He's willing to compete and sacrifice on the defensive end. He guards in a super physical manner. And for the Ignite, a team that was an absolute mess on defense this year, he was the one guy out there who always seemed to care and compete and try to hold things together. So 
I am again, I can talk about the game tape and all the things that I love that he does on a basketball court, but this is about informed bets at some point in the draft. Yeah. It's a, a, a phrase that I'm stealing from you a lot, Sam. Every indication I am uh, have about his pathway forward, where he's been, his physical frame, and the type of competitor that he is makes me as a coach wants to have him in my locker room and on the court. That's my informed bet. So I, I don't mind this as an informed bet. And I think it's a reasonable one for you to make. I'm just a little bit lower, I think, because I worry about the intersection of his skill level with his style of athleticism, maybe, yep. is the way yeah. to put it. Yep. He's a good athlete, but he's kind of not functional all the time. Like, he's just very square. He doesn't have a lot of hip flexibility. And, like, you mentioned the idea of, like, competitiveness, right? And, like, competitive drive, right? And I like it if I think you can really defend multiple positions at, like, a super high level. I'm worried that he's going to struggle with perimeter players in the NBA in space a little bit more than what I would like him to. Super foul prone, super handsy as a defender, it feels like. And I think he struggles to drop his hips and like be able to stay in front and cut off driving angles defensively. How do you feel about his on-ball defense at the next level? Because I think that's actually like a big question in terms of his translation. Yeah, I feel really good about the the on-ball defensive stuff from Sissoko. And, and I have for a long period of time. Uh, I, I know that he is very handsy. He got himself into a lot of foul trouble this past year playing with the Ignite. I chalked that up as much to, I don't want to say inexperience in some regard, but uh, a desire to make a play more so than the capability of being disciplined. Um, look, the... the I really like him as a help defender. I think that's where his game pops the most and in guarding up the lineup. But he's got really long arms. Like I, I felt okay with the movement patterns. Does, does he? he? When he's matched up against smaller guys, I should say, his yeah. length looks bigger upon them. So if he's guarding the two or, or even some some bigger ones, his length is going to be a comparative advantage at that position. And I feel okay with the mobility of his feet. I think that he has a desire to lean into contact a little bit too much, and that can get him in trouble when smaller, quicker guards have, you know, in and out dribbles can change directions a little bit more quickly, might be able to spin off of him in some regard. But that's all stuff that can be taught and tampered down a little bit more than it is really concerns that I have about his natural movement patterns. Like I I feel okay about the footwork. Okay. Now here comes my biggest question here i i don't like the shot that, that's ultimately my biggest worry here is i i really have some questions about the shooting i don't really like the touch like it's different than leonard miller like i, I feel like leonard miller is a much better bet to shoot than cd is because i think leonard showcases like real touch the foul line showcases real touch around the basket pretty close in terms of three-point percentage right off the top of my head, like I'm just kind of ballparking off the top yeah, of my head. I think CD was a little bit farther ahead right now. So CD shot 30.4% from three this year and 
let's see. Let's consult the draft guide. Uh, Leonard was at hmm. 30.4. So basically the same. Uh, in, in the case of CD, though, I think the mechanics are a little bit harder to actually like change on some level. Um, has a lot of really inconsistent misses, has slower release. The release point is like out in front of his face and he has like that flipper motion kind of thing where like he doesn't get full extension on the shot. I, I, I don't know. Like it feels like the trajectory is super inconsistent. Like sometimes mm-hmm. it's flat, mm-hmm. sometimes it's high with Leonard. Like I feel like the trajectory is consistent. It's a high arcing shot. I feel like he just needs to like kind of shift his hips a little bit and like, you know, stop being so squared off when shooting threes. And I think he has real touch. And I think you can like adjust the hand placement, which is something I know he's already working on with CD. It feels like there are more moving parts to try to fix the shot, which is what worries me. I certainly understand that argument. I I think for me, it's less about trying to be the shot doctor and diagnose every single fix for things or evaluate the myriad of ways where he's gone wrong and more about a, the continued buy into the person and the work ethic and the character, but B look at the year over year improvement. Like he was much worse as a shooter a year ago playing in Europe, I think only 24% from three on his catch and shoot looks. If I remember off the top of my head to get from that point to where he's at now, 34% on catch and shoot threes this year, just over 30% overall. That is enough improvement for me to think that there's an upward trajectory for a guy like him to at least be passable as an off ball guy. And if he does that again, it's the informed bet on a multi-positional competitive defender who has real skill to make right decisions on the offensive end and shoots enough where he can't be ignored. That's the type of guy that I would expect to get. Yeah, I don't. If you can project that, this is a completely reasonable informed bet, I think. Uh, For me, I I just couldn't quite get there with him. And I just kind of worry a a little bit about it at the end of the day. Like, I, I think that, for me, like, for instance, like Leonard Miller, again, like, I think Leonard Miller can play in the NBA as an energy big, right? Like, he is he has a nine-foot standing reach, and, like, your worst-case scenario here is that he can go be, like, a worse version of Kevon Looney, maybe? Something like that? And that's still, like, a backup center in the NBA, Right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'd call that worst case scenario, but I think that that's a, a scenario that's certainly within the cards. That's not on the highest range of outcomes. Yeah. For it's maybe like a 20th percentile outcome sure. or something like that. With CD, I think there, there are like, like a lot of outcomes where it's mm-hmm. low end. You know what I mean? Like where it's like, he's out of the NBA, uh, which worries me a little bit. I ended up with him at 32. I'm in on the idea of betting on him as like a top of the second round pick. I think it's completely reasonable and rational to do so. I couldn't quite get to a first round grade on him in this class. Sure. Where do you have CD Sissoko ranked? I have CD Sissoko at number 17 on my board. Yep. Which by the way, I have 17 and 32 in the same tier uh, in my draft guide. 
I think it's completely re- like I think this is a hundred percent reasonable to have uh, to have CD be your informed bet yep. in this and, class. And I go sixteen to like twenty eight on my board for for one tier as well. So yeah. again, very very reasonable. Kind of a lot of range of outcomes once you get to the later part, middle to late part of the first round here. But uh, I do I do believe in the person for CD Sissoko and the the competitor that he is. Uh, Sometimes I think it's important to not overthink things at times, right? And when you're picking teams for pickup, a lot of times you want to try to find balance on your team or, you know, whatever skill level guys have. Like sometimes it's just, I'm going to take the guy that I don't want to play against. And nobody screams that more to me in this draft class than CD Sissoko. Yep. Okay. Next up, we're going to go to one of my guys. Leonard Miller. Oh. Lenny. Give me the case, Sam. Come on. Six, nine and a half without shoes. Seven foot two wingspan. Great physical frame. 215 pounds already. Strong. Like, was starting to bully guys in the G League by the end of the year. Like, was bullying professional players in his drives to the rim. Like, he would put his shoulder into you and he would move them backward. Right? And I think that that is a big piece of why I'm a believer. I'm a believer in the frame continuing to fill out long-term. Him being somebody that gets up to 225, 230 pounds and just moves dudes. Like really is able to get to the rim when and where he wants to. Once he gets there, probably not the best touch in this class at the basket, but is in the top three or four. Certainly, uh, you know, Adama Sinogo literally set records at Connecticut this year in terms of touch at the basket. I think he'd probably be my pick, but Leonard might be number two. Uh, Leonard has this incredible ability once he gets to the rim uh, to use either hand and have a wide variety of touch finishes. I've talked a lot about how I love his like Euro step right hand floater and I love it. Adam, do you want to talk about his finishing and what you don't like? Yeah, I don't like that he only drives left to get there. I see the ambidextrous finishing yeah. at the basket, but he has only one way of getting there, which is driving hard to his left hand and then either yeah. floating it off the glass or Euro stepping back to finish with his right. It's not as much about the touch. It's the process to getting there. And that's going to be a common theme for me of why I'm a little bit lower on Leonard Miller than you are. Yeah, very left-hand dominant as a driver. I, I don't think that is wrong by any stretch of the imagination uh 66.7 percent of his shots at the rim he made 61.3 percent in half court settings uh ridiculous numbers given some of the degree of difficulty on those great transition player has the ability to handle the ball in space with his right hand not necessarily in the half court at this point but can grab and go can create early offense can make passing reads out on the break at a solid level I believe in the passing at like a fairly reasonable level as a secondary creator. I don't think he's like a primary guy, but I think that if he has the ball in his left hand and he is driving, he can make live dribble passes. Uh, I think he is a generally good decision maker. If you look at his last 15 games, had a 2.6 assist versus like one and a half turnovers number uh, that was quite good. I think that the, Biggest thing, though, that we're talking about here is the growth from the beginning of the season 
to the end of the season. And this is my case more than anything. CD Sissoko, to be honest, I thought he like kind of stagnated at a certain point this season. Leonard, by the end of the year, was averaging like 21 and 12 and two and a half assists in the G League. And that's the thing where like, look, I'm writing about Leonard for this week, but like, I think that his ability to process information, take it in, improve, get better is so underrated. The fact that he went from getting slammed on, I think like multiple times in their first game against Metropolitans by Victor Wembanyama to becoming what he did by the end of the year where he was like an incredibly effective player for the G League Ignite says a lot. Like that says what my eyes saw when I went out to Santa Barbara. Like we have evidence in terms of like the visuals of watching him work out and seeing what he is doing and how you don't have to tell him things twice and like how he's able to process information. But we also have the evidence in terms of the numbers of him being able to do that. No, his, so, his year over year growth is outstanding. Like if you compare where he was a year ago at the, the NBA draft combine to where he is right now, like night and day difference. hundred percent, a hundred percent. And this is a guy who's a late bloomer, you know, when he got to Wasatch Academy, I think he was like six foot six or so gets down to victory rock prep down in Florida, breaks his wrist, you know, doesn't really have a lot of health where he's able to play. And then goes up to the Ontario Scholastic League, which is a situation where he's, you know, by far and away the most talented player at the end of the day. So he can't actually, you know, play against good, you know, elite level talent across the board one through five there. So he's a guy that this is his first season where he's ever played high level competition. Coming into this season, did not play AAU basketball because of the broken wrist. Did not play really a lot of high-level high school basketball because Wasatch Academy that year had like a billion guys that were uh, high-major recruits. I think they literally had like six seniors ahead of him that were high-major recruits. The first high-level taste he got was playing at Hoop Summit last year. Then he plays at the Combine. For him to do what he did this year, when he is the only – this is his first year playing – anything resembling this level of competition is wildly impressive to me. And if you remember, I was nowhere near high on Leonard Miller. I did not like him as a prospect at all last year. I think that the, I think the growth trajectory here is so far beyond what I could have envisioned. And that's why I have him at 13 on my board. And I get that. I, I I think you lay out a very compelling argument here. Before we dive into, I got to do the one thing. I got to do the Please. one thing and defend Dude, my look, guy, Cedi Sissoko. I, I just do questioned Cedi Sissoko for a while, so I need I need you to question Leonard. Yeah. Well, before I, I question Leonard, which I'm going to do, I, I've got to say you'd mentioned kind of stagnation from Sissoko later in yeah. the the season for him from January 15th to March 15th, which is a pretty solid two month sample. from three. And what happened after that point, they shut Scoot Henderson down and they failed to have creators around him who could get him some of those easier looks. 
And I think a part of the reason that Leonard Miller's numbers took a huge spike forward during that final part of the season is because of Scoot Henderson resting a little bit more and him being the easiest guy to slide into that primary role. And that is going to be the segue here for where I am on the, the debate between the two. Even though Leonard Miller showed a lot of those really positive traits of pushing in transition, being able to attack and get to the basket. He's just so much stronger than everybody else. I don't know if I see him as a primary type of guy. I think he struggles in the half court to create separation. I don't think he has as many dribble moves in his arsenal because he's so limited by not being able to go right at this moment. And I really don't buy the jump shot. This is the area I know you pushed back a little bit more earlier with CD and you like the touch that Leonard Miller has, I am completely mortified by the base of his shot, by yeah. the the different setups that he has before the, the ball arrives to him on the catch, by the staggered landings sometimes. Like, he kind of jumps on, on some occasions. He kind of doesn't on others. Like, I am yeah. very worried about the base of his jump shot. And if the jumper doesn't come... I don't think there's enough connective playmaking feel for him to fit positively into an offense in the way where he wouldn't get played off the floor in crunch time. So I, I think mechanically, I don't disagree with you. Like there's a lot of work on the shot mechanics. I think he needs to like turn his hips a little bit and not be a square to the rim. Any, I know he's I've mentioned a couple of times that he's working on like the offhand, which, you know, it felt like early in the season was like in front of the ball a lot of the time. And at the end of the day, like it's all about believing in the kid to like improve the shot. Right. I I believe in the kid because I've watched it. One thing here, though, is like, you know, we have a YouTube comment that says Leonard Miller is very stiff. I don't disagree but i kind of do i think he has very unique body mechanics where it looks like he's like constantly on the edge of being off balance when you watch him on tape but he's actually not like that's the thing like he has real body control and like his his balance is good like his center of balance is really awesome i think and it allows him to get into these awkward positions and still maintain his balance, yeah. his contact balance, his ability to go up and maintain that touch through contact. Yeah. I, I do get the idea of him being stiff, but I, I think it's a guy that's still growing into his body more than anything else while still also maintaining like important athletic traits. Well, uh, well and, and the one thing I'll say in defense of Leonard here is that when you're kind of the contact initiator and you're super strong, like he just has natural strength to the way that he plays. You're not the guy that's going to get knocked off balance or off, uh, off your kilter through contact. You're the guy that's initiating it and allows you to stay on balance. So even if he's somewhat stiff, like I think of stiff as lacking the flexibility to react to different movement patterns or contact that you face. And he might not have the, the bend that allows him to weave in and out of traffic or change speeds in a aesthetically pleasing fashion, but through contact, like that guy is not losing balance at all. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, Okay. 
Let's talk about a guy that we both like. This is our guy. Our guy. What you got? Kobe Bufkin. Why do you like Kobe Bufkin, Adam? I like Kobe Bufkin because there are very few prospects who I evaluate and I can not find the real flaw in their game. And I keep mentioning this about Kobe when, whenever I talk about him over on my YouTube channel or in different podcasts. Like The flaw for Kobe Bufkin is just that he hasn't strung together every single aspect of his game for a consistently long period of time. It was mm-hmm. like 12 games at the end of the season, but within that 12, 12 game sample, he showed a little bit of everything on both ends of the floor. Catch and shoot ability. Really smooth stroke. Great three-level scoring potential. We know at this point how strong he is at the rim, like 60-something percent in the half-court area, uses both hands near the basket, plays with great pace in the ball screens, showed some comfort hitting mid-range pull-ups, has that potential to do so from three and actually knock those down in an efficient clip. Like That is a very complete guard when you can knock down shots off ball, score on three levels on ball, and oh, by the way, be a pretty trusted and solid creator with the ball in his hands. That's the area I want to see more consistently from him. Yeah. But as a scorer, like he has shown glimpses of potential in every single functional area for a lead guard. And oh, by the way, super long arms, super competitive on defense, extends his pressure, blocks shots from behind, one of the better shot blocking guards in this class. Like he's not one of those guys whose value is going to be determined by whether he turns into a 20-point-per-game guy versus a 8- a or 10-point-per-game guy. like He can be Derek White for the Boston Celtics this year, where his role out there is to just take whatever's given to him because he's versatile enough on offense he can do it, but primarily just be a really, really strong defender. If that's his role, he can do it. But there's so much potential for more. Yeah, so I thought he was the critical piece on Michigan. If you look at the numbers, Michigan completely fell off the cliff when he was off the court, on both ends of the court. Uh, this is a team, by the way, that throughout the course of the season defensively, went from being like kind of a mess early in the season to actually having the second-best defense in Big Ten play uh, on a points-per-possession basis this season. So I think Kobe was like the main reason for that to be honest, like he was huge for them on defense this year. Uh, His ability to guard both on and off ball was really valuable for them. The thing that I think I'm most worried about with Kobe is just the frame. Like doesn't have a great intersection of strength and athleticism, right? He's a good athlete. He's not an elite athlete. His frame, he's like 185 pounds. 190 pounds, somewhere in that range, right? It can be a little bit hard. Here's the thing that's important to note, though. Kobe Bufkin is also, like, two weeks younger than Jet Howard. He is a sophomore that went to college early. And I think because of that, people think of him sometimes like a sophomore, but he's not. If you look at his statistical indicators based on using him as like a freshman aged player, he did stuff that like nobody else did this year in terms of production. 
And then on top of it, he got better throughout the season. Like you look at his last 10 games, 12 games, something like that. He averaged like 17.6 rebounds, three and a half assists, turned the ball over very little, uh, shot like probably 50% from the field, 36% from three, 85 from the line. I would guess something like that. I think Adam's looking it up as we talk. Um, he's just a tremendous, tremendous all around player. I just worry about his ability in terms of like the intersection of athleticism and strength. Plus with the fact that he doesn't have like a great bag of tricks off the bounce, right? Can he consistently pressure the paint or is he more of just like a Derek white kind of player? I think he's probably more just like a Derek white kind of guy, but Derek white also is probably one of the 50 best players in the NBA. So I'm good with that. Yeah, and I have Bufkin uh, 14th on my board, like a late lottery grade. I I haven't gotten to the point where I have him top 10, and it's more so because of maybe the lack of wiggle as a self-creator. I think he's probably going to take his lumps a little bit more as he transitions into the role of being the guy, that he might not be as efficient. He might not take as much care of the basketball. There might be some games where he struggles to create for others. But the flashes we saw at the end of the season – They feel very real because of the growth trajectory, because of the age. Like you mentioned, like younger than Brandon Miller, younger than the Thompson twins. Like this stuff matters and is important. And as you said, that that end of the season sample from February 1st onward, 17 and a half points, six rebounds, 3.3 assists on 52, 45, 89 and change shooting from the stripe. Yeah. No, I think that... I think Kobe is really quite good. I'm glad that we're in agreement on Kobe this year. I've met 11. I'm even higher on, on him yep. than you are. Uh, I think he's tremendous. And I think that all of the conversation about him in the lottery currently, completely justified, completely mm-hmm. reasonable. I would very strongly look at him uh, if I was Oklahoma City, would very strongly look at him if I was Orlando, actually. Would very strongly look at him if I was uh, certainly Toronto, given their complete lack of depth in the backcourt right now. Uh, would look at him strongly if I was New Orleans and if I was Utah, I would not let him get past 16. Uh, and I would try and trade up if I was the Lakers to get him. Uh, if I was at 17, Ooh, him on the Lakers would be really fun. I like that. That'd be great. Wouldn't it? Yeah. It'd be, be good really fit. good. Okay. Uh, do we have, I don't know. Do, do we have anyone else that we want to go to like truly our guys before we move on and, you know, talk about some disagreements we have maybe. Sure. Um, how do we feel about one certain wing with a seven foot wingspan who uh, might be Olivier maximizing his potential lately? Yeah, I think Omax is a guy that probably fits our guy. Um, we were both very high on Omax throughout the process. Yeah. Great defender. I see a lot of people kind of talk about his defense and lack of defensive playmaking is a negative. I think that. It, you really have to contextualize steal yes. rates and block rates. Yes. Like Omax's role was not go grab rebounds, be a weak side rim protector, uh, go shoot passing lanes. He played like a shutdown role this year, chasing Jordan Hawkins off of screens, cutting off driving angles from Cam Whitmore, uh, swallowing up Colby Jones with like his length. Right. It, it was more that I think than the idea of like, okay, we're going to be an awesome help defender. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Yeah. His job was to just guard the other team's best player and shut them down. Or I shouldn't say best player, but 
the most advantageous spot that Marquette wanted to pinpoint. They just put Prosper on it and said, go. And yeah. you watch so many different games, like against Butler, he was guarding bigger wings and playing fours and maybe even the five. Against Xavier, he was guarding Colby Jones pretty much the entire game, switching on ball screens, trying to plague him around at different points. Villanova, he would guard all across the lineup, had moments on Justin Moore, had moments on Cam Whitmore, who was trying to beat him to spots, did a great job of turning Cam into a pull-up shooter. And then the the chef's kiss on all of this was the performance in the Big East tournament against Jordan Hawkins, where he was chasing oh, him man. all around screens and not letting Hawkins feel comfortable or breathe anything whatsoever. And that's less about Jordan Hawkins having a really, really tough game as much as it was of Prosper not giving him any room to breathe whatsoever. And the Marquette coaching staff identifying, and accurately so, that shutting down Jordan Hawkins was the way to beat Connecticut. And that is just such a valuable chess piece for any coach to have in a postseason series or even through the regular season. Just one guy who's so versatile at the point of attack, you can just throw out there and say, go guard that guy and make his life a living hell. Like That's a role player I'd want on my team. The other question I would ask you is how do you feel about a shot? Better, a lot better. I've seen a little bit more mechanical tweaking over the last year. I thought he got better again as the season went on. But more than anything about just the shot, it's how translatable the role in Marquette's offense he played is to the NBA. Like a lower usage guy who played around ball screen situations and just kind of knows, okay, this is when I'm supposed to 45 cut and go back door to the rim. This is how I move around the short roll when I'm on the baseline and I want to get a dunk here as opposed to just a three standing in the corner. Here's where when it's a an empty side ball screen, here's where I need to be on the weak side. I can exchange with this other guy and get to the corner so that I provide a little bit more spacing. He's a really smart and experienced off-ball player where – All you really have to work on with Omax is just getting that shot down consistently. He doesn't have to do what a lot of other guys do when they get to the NBA, which is learn how to scale down their game to become a role player. I find great value in that. Okay, so this feeds into another another guy we want to talk about. Uh, And this is where maybe we get into disagreements. Recently, I've been trying to figure out how I feel about guys that are more, you know, potentially limited, like Omax, who played this role at Marquette where it was more cutting, getting out in transition, corner three-point shooting, you know, etc. Versus guys who play an enormous role scaling down, such as Jalen Wilson. I am much higher on Jalen Wilson than you are. Yep. And I think it's because of this idea that I think we often underrate guys who have proven previously that they can be impactful role players on winning and then scale up into like enormous roles where other parts of their game, you know, go by the wayside. And we'll talk about that with Jalen Wilson, particularly this year. And I think we also underrate just the ability to like be a threat with the ball in your hands. Like Jalen Wilson can really dribble. Like he can really handle the ball at a high level. He is very comfortable having the ball in his hands. He's comfortable dealing with pressure. He's comfortable dealing with 
a number of different things that present themselves to you on the basketball court. If a NBA team pressures Omax, I have no idea how he's going to respond. I liked that at the combine, we saw a couple of moments of him being able to handle half court ball pressure. And I think that that is why I have Omax higher than Jalen Wilson on my board. Like I believe in the shooting and the defense and everything like that. But I wonder if we often underrate the idea of ball handling and being comfortable with the ball in your hands, given how good NBA defenders are, even when you're trying to attach somebody into more of a role player type of setting. I think it's certainly valid in a lot of different ways. And it's a lesson that I kind of learned the hard way in some regard. Like this was a conversation a couple of years ago I was having around Trey Murphy coming out of Virginia. I was really worried about how little he put the ball on the floor when he was a Cavalier. Everything for him was catch and shoot. And when he did put the ball on the floor, it didn't look very pretty. He's got a little bit different of a context because he had that late growth spurt, grew up with some guard skills. Like it was there. He just didn't really show it or grow into his body yet. Uh, So I think that there is something to having that ability as a role player for me, it's more so like Omax didn't necessarily get to show it at Marquette. That doesn't necessarily mean he can't do it. So I would buy in a little bit more on Omax having more handle, more burst, more ability to just play in straight lines than try to reward Wilson for already having shown that he can do that at the college level. Yeah. Here's the thing. Caleb Wilson's kind of shown that already. Like he was just yes. like the third best player on a title team last year, you know, depending on how you want to quantify what David McCormick did in the NCAA tournament. I have my, my, my issues with the Wilson thing for a lot of different reasons. And it, and it's more about scaling down again. Right. I, I think yeah. he, that's the conversation. We know he's not going to average 20 in the NBA, just not quite shifty enough. He's got a real handle, but he's not very shifty. He lives in the mid range, very reliant on spin moves. That's how he gets to his mid range jumper. He drives one direction, doesn't necessarily have the quickness to get past somebody and then spins into a tough mid range shot. I think the absolute world of Bill self as a basketball coach I think he has proven to be the elite tactical guy in college basketball for much of the last 20 years. And he faced a realization this year. He probably needed somebody to slide into being that number one option offensively and found ways to get Jalen Wilson, the ball on the move. I agree with you. He's got a decent handle, but he needs a runway to get started before that handle has any type of functionality. And if that's not going to be catered for him by the offensive scheme, I have real worries about him utilizing that handle from a standstill. Kansas got him the ball in the slots already moving downhill Mm -hmm. on pitch actions. They found ways to curl him off of baseline screen so he could catch and have one to two dribbles attacking to his right hand in the middle of the floor. Like Bill Self was a mastermind of putting Jalen Wilson in spots where his deficiencies don't necessarily show as much. Combine that with the fact that he's never shot above 34% from three on a season and is still just a little bit too inconsistent for me to buy into that being his role. 
And I don't know what value he brings as a role player to an NBA team that doesn't find ways to help him out with their scheme in the way that Bill Self did. Isn't the fact that he can actually know how to curl off of off-ball actions and like find cutting areas like a good thing? It's not that it's a a bad thing that he knows how to do that. I think that there is real value in the versatility of how he was utilized, but you're not running wide pin down actions for your fourth or, or, or fifth best guy on the floor. And I don't think that he has the live dribble mechanics as a scorer to be in the top three, maybe even top four options for a team. Like to me, he is that fourth connective guy on a basketball court. Yeah. Yeah, I don't look. All, all of your concerns here are valid, and really, it comes down to him being able to shoot. If he can't shoot, he's probably not an NBA player. I think that I believe in the shot to a pretty real extent. Like, I think he has touch. I think he's shown that if he gets open shots, he will probably shoot at a higher level than what we saw in the NBA or in the uh, NCAA at the very least. And I, I just keep coming back to the fact that, like, these guys that tend to figure it out as role players in the NBA, right? They tend to be awesome college basketball players. Like Dylan Brooks was awesome in college, right? Like guys that tend to be really good NBA players in role varieties tend to be great college players. Grant Williams was a great college player. Malcolm Brogdon was a great college player. Uh, You know, just kind of running through rosters here, right? Like, you know, maybe you could say, DeAnthony Melton just didn't get a chance. Like I think DeAnthony would have been awesome his sophomore year if it wasn't for, you know, the situation at USC with like the investigation into college basketball. But do you know who was a great college player? Who's that? PJ Tucker. Like the guys that tend to figure it out, like in role player varieties, I feel like they tend to be extremely productive like really good college players. Kyle Anderson was awesome at UCLA. You know, like you just kind of go like Austin Reeves was awesome at Oklahoma. So so I'm going to interrupt for a second and just ask you, like through this list, stop me when you get to a guy who doesn't either have a really consistent catch and shoot game or really high feel as a playmaker. Like, It's one of those two things. And I don't trust either from Jalen Wilson. I think the PJ Tucker example is is an appropriate one. How long did it take him to evolve into that guy as a catch and shoot threat where he could come back and perform in the NBA? Like Mm -hmm. it wasn't there right away. And as a result, he got played out of the league. That's the worry I have with Wilson. Look, again, like, I don't think any of this is wrong. And I think this is like the, this is why this conversation is worth having. Because I think that what what you're saying is like a completely valid argument. But for me, like, it's where does that, where does like the rubber hit the road in terms of where you need to find a spot for Jalen Wilson? And for me, it was at like 38 or 39. I think he's like a really solid bet to be like on an end of roster guaranteed contract, basically. Like if you're Denver and you want very cheap, like potentially early contributors because you're a contender, or if you're Phoenix and you're trying to buy into the early second round, which is something they were trying to do um, early in this 
draft process. I don't know how the Bradley Beal situation has changed that, to be completely honest. Um, if you're Cleveland and you don't have a lot of mechanisms to get better, if you're Milwaukee and you don't have a lot of mechanisms to get better, I don't know. Like, I kind of want a guy who can come in and like potentially do this now and figure it out. So we talked about the defense a little bit in texting back and forth before this. Where, where are you at on Jalen Wilson's defense? I thought he was not awesome off the ball this season. Uh, I think he's a very strong defender who doesn't have great length, but I think that in general, his footwork is pretty good on the ball. And I think he can be switchable when more of his energy is catered toward the defensive end. I thought last year he was actually pretty solid on defense. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas this year, as he took on the greater offensive load, it was harder for him, I think, to maintain that level of like engagement a lot of the time yeah a lot of poor moments off ball a lot of pointing for switches instead of trying to get through things and leaving his his teammates hanging in some regard um what position does he guard at the point of attack at the at the best of things in your mind i think wings i think he's gonna have to guard wings because he's like he's 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 not long he's six six with like a six eight wingspan that's not very long for guarding wings I, i think the comp is dylan brooks and like, I think that he's not going to be as good as Dylan is defensively because Dylan turned into an all defense guy. But right. like in terms of the body type, athleticism, everything like that, I think the comp is Dylan Brooks. The physical comp is Dylan Brooks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I just, it, look, if you're going to be a role player, I want you to either really shoot, really defend, or just be a high level connective playmaker. And I haven't seen enough from Wilson to check any of those boxes where I'm just going to be like Mark Cuban at the beginning of Shark Tank and say, for those reasons, I'm out. Yeah, so you kind of feel the way that I do about someone like Keontae George, right? Like Keontae George is someone I'm just like comfortable missing on, right? Uh, At the end of the day, like you are comfortable missing on Jalen Wilson. Like, I'm comfortable having, uh, you know, I'm I'm trying to think, like, a guy that I have a little bit lower. Um, Like, I'm comfortable missing on Brandon Pajemski, I think is maybe a way to put it, right? Uh, Other people are not. Other people think he has, like, star-level outcomes. I get that. I mean, I I don't agree with it, but I get it on some level. Um, I, I would add Noah Clowney for me. He's a guy I'm comfortable missing on. Yeah, Clowney is one where I keep going back and forth. I ended up with Clowney at like 22 or so just because I was like, well, what if this works? Like, then I would be upset that I missed on it. Um, but look, I, I understand like being comfortable with missing on Jalen Wilson, I think is what I would say. Sure. Um, but I'm, uh, you know, I ended up with him at 39 and I quite like him. Um, is there anyone else that we disagree on? We disagree on. I don't know if it's a disagreement, but you know who we haven't talked about for a while in some regard is Bryce Sensabaugh. Yeah. So, like, look, this is very public information. Bryce has talked about it before. Um, Bryce had multiple meniscus surgeries in high school and obviously just had um, this situation with his knee where he missed most of the pre-draft process, right? I think there is like a fairly real concern about these factors, 
uh, which sucks. Like I think NBA teams are somewhat worried about like Bryce Sensabaugh and his knees, especially for a guy that's a bit heavier, right? Like and puts more force on the knees, especially putting more force uh, on a knee where these are meniscus injuries. You don't really like grow your meniscus back, right? Like these, these things can get worse. I still ended up with Bryce Sensabaugh with a top 20 grade because I think he is a monster scorer. Like he is an unbelievable scorer of the basketball for his age, like a historic college basketball scorer for his age in terms of efficiency and in terms of age and volume. On top of that, his game translates to playing both on and off the ball. That's super valuable. Like he hit 40% from three this year. If he can like, as long as long as the knees hold up, like he's going to be a good offensive player. He is. I think. I think the key word is offensive, but yes, like he, he's, he is. He's bad on defense. He's very bad, bad on defense. defense. I get it. Like it's fine. It's not fine, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's not great on defense right now, and you know, as I keep diving back into numbers and, and looking at different things with Sensabaugh, like what what really stood out to me was the the lack of pull-up range to three. Is that something that you really encountered at all with him, that a lot of the self-created makes that he had were tough ones in the mid-range? And while that's like all power to him and you need tough shot makers in that regard, I wasn't that enthused about his pull-up range out to three. Do you come across that at all? I, I understand your worry on it, I guess I would say. Like he made 26% from three on his pull-up threes this year, which is – not a great number. He's strong and he like is so good from the mid range as a pull up shooter that I just kind of think it's going to be fine. Like he hit 53% of his pull up mid range jumpers. Yeah. I think it's going to be fine. Long-term. Okay. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not quite as confident in that stuff. I know the shooting touch is legitimate everywhere else, but I see some like lack of lift and base stuff that worries me. And particularly knowing he's got a history of knee injuries, like adding range to that becomes a little bit more challenging. Yeah. And it sucks. Like, look at any NBA teams as Bryce, like very low, I'll get it. Like, uh, you know, there's so many variables with him, unfortunately. And that sucks. Um, I ended up with him in 19 because I think the offensive package is so strong that I'd just be like, okay, like I got to do this Uh, at a certain level. Like if I was the Pacers, I'd be like, yeah, like, Ricarlisle loves finding shooters. Yeah. You have you have Tyrese Halliburton to be able to create for him and like bend defenses and then find him where he can attack a closeout or just knock down a 40% three-pointer. Yeah. I, I'm I, I'm taking a flyer on Bryce and kind of going for it if I'm late in the first round. 44% of his catch and shoot threes this year he made like yeah. This is it's just a dude that I really really like. A, a dude yep. that I'm willing to buy into. Sure. First round grade for me, 27th, I believe, on my board, like late part of the first. And it's less about the injury stuff and more about the the pull-up range and the defensive concerns, maybe a little bit with lack of feel. Like he's he's just got a couple things he needs to figure out. Yeah, no, I get it. Okay. Anyone else you want to talk about? 
I don't think so. We we omaxed and prospered. Uh, we got oh Ben Shepard's a guy we both really like too. Yeah, really we like should him. talk about we should talk about Ben because you've been riding the Ben Shepard train and conducting that uh, train for a while now. And if we're talking about our guys, Ben Shepard has been your guy throughout this process. Yeah, I really like Ben Shepard and and did an early scouting report on him just as the college basketball season was wrapping up and kept trying to say to myself like. He checks so many of those modern boxes for the NBA as a smart basketball player with decent length, competes on the defensive end, and has the real ability to shoot. Like it, it I probably put down Ben Shepard film for like a month and a half to two month process. I watched him early on in the cycle in March, and then I didn't touch his game tape again until maybe the last week or two. And after going through all of the mind numbing, horribly just awful, wretched catch and shoot footage that we've seen from certain guys. Like Shepard's is such a beautiful shot. It's quick. It's versatile. He knows how to play off ball and slide into shooting pockets. Like everything about him to me, scream the guy who's going to be scalable in the right situation. So I've been a huge fan of Shepard for a long period of time. It's nice to see him start to get a little late first round love. Yeah, no, I really, really like it. Um, I think Shepard is a guy that really impressed me at the combine. I've been worried about like his lack of size and strength combination, but I think he ends up going in the first round for sure. I'd love it. I'd love it. Yeah, I, I do genuinely think so. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm very intrigued. Okay, uh, we're gonna take some questions here. I just threw into the chat. Uh, if you guys have any questions, I will absolutely. Uh, take them and we will answer them. If you guys have them Uh, from spaced orb nine, what do Bilal Kulabali's recent measurements uh, do to impact your view of him? Uh, Nothing because we've known them. (laughs) Um, If you listen to past podcasts, we've talked about him as a six foot six guy with a seven foot two wingspan. That's what he is. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, and if he's six seven, six eight, like that changes maybe the slightest bit of things in terms of just what his primary position to guard is going to be. But I still think defensively, it's more about your length than your height. So I don't think him being an inch or two taller does too much when his wingspan is already so broad. Yeah, agree. Uh Let's see here. What do you think of DeAndre to San Antonio? What DeAndre are we talking about, Darren? Sorry, I'm not going to answer that until we get a DeAndre uh, response. Uh, DeAndre Ayton, I'm guessing. I would assume from from our earlier. Could it be DeAndre Jordan, DeAndre Hunter? Um, (laughs) DeAndre Ayton to San Antonio? I wouldn't do that just because they have Victor Wembanyama. Yeah, I mean, I think think you can use Zach Collins as the center next to Vic for next year and just be completely comfortable and happy with that. Yeah. In in the words of the great philosopher, Randy Jackson, that's going to be a no from me, dog. Yeah. Agree. Uh, Dirty dancer. I don't know the question, but thought on Najee. So as in James Najee wasn't involved much overseas. It it is impressive that he's able to like get some, you know, real minutes in EuroLeague, get some real minutes in the ACB. I ended up with him at like 40, because I don't love the hands and the polish and everything. Uh, I will say his measurements were a bit eye-opening to me. I've always assumed he was incredibly long and, you know, tall and big and everything. 
I think I did not recognize seven foot seven wingspan or, uh, you know, actually like seven foot in shoes. I thought he was going to be more like six, ten and a half in shoes, um, with like maybe a seven foot five, seven foot four and a half wingspan, something like that. His measurements, I think, were a bit uh, eye opening in some way. I still wouldn't have him as a first round grade personally, because I think the polish is worrisome. Having said that, guys with these kinds of measurements have very much been successful previously. Yeah, there's a lot of defensive upside for a guy like Najee. I don't know if I can get on board with the offense enough to move him up to a first round grade, but these small measurement tweaks having this much more length like it does matter for the projectability of his defense particularly knowing he's mobile enough to be able to do some things away from the basket Mm -hmm. so philip flores asks me why cam whitmore over a men thompson uh for me so i would tell you it's like very situational i'm gonna do a houston rockets big board at some point this week I would actually take a Men Thompson if I was them. I, did we talk about that last week? I think we might have. I think we did. I do that on another podcast. Yeah. Um, the ball movement piece of it is a bit worrisome for me with the Rockets, uh, with Cam Whitmore. Like if you put him in between Jalen Green and Jabari Smith, that that worries me quite a bit in terms of getting proper ball movement and everything. So even though they might sign James Harden, well, first and foremost, I just wouldn't sign James Harden. But if I was the Rockets, I would take a men Thompson over cam Whitmore, even though I have a men at five and cam at three. Look, if I was grading these guys, like on a scale of a hundred in a vacuum, I would have cam Whitmore at 94, Brandon Miller at 93 and a half, you know, maybe a men Thompson at 92 and a half or something. Right. And that little bit of difference I think is really, really important when you're trying to determine the fit of a player with an organization. If you think a guy is in the same tier and is very close, I do think that it's like essential that you be able to fit that guy into a role that makes sense for them. Like just from like a player development standpoint, from getting the most out of that player, like look at what Obi Toppin has dealt with. Like when Obi Toppin plays like as a roller and rim runner in New York, I think he's like been pretty impressive and energetic they just can't play him that way because that's not their scheme where fit comes in and why guys i think end up higher or lower on certain teams boards is scheme and the amount of multiplicity you can have in scheme by drafting certain players on your roster and scheme in terms of what your base level coverage is and your base level uh, identity is on offense that is where fit is important. It's not just like we have a bunch of centers. We shouldn't take a center, right? Or we have a bunch of point guards. We shouldn't take a point guard. It's skill level fit that I think is actually somewhat important to talk about here. Yes. So why do I think cam over a man on my personal board? I think that cam eventually is just going to be like an absolute stud 20 point per game scorer where I think he is so athletically gifted like if a man is like a top 1% athlete where he's going to be like, you know, one of the five best athletes in the NBA from day one, I think Cam Whitmore is one of the top 12 uh, in the NBA from day one in terms of like intersection of power and burst and explosiveness. And I, I just think that guy's a 20 to 25 point per game score in the NBA. Uh, that's super valuable to me. And I think that I trust the defense a little bit more than some others do, especially on the ball. I get that. I get that. 
Okay. Let's see here. Um, <laughs> is it just me or is the three through 13 range in this class the most interchangeable it's felt in a while? Adam, where is your tier breakdown? I've released the draft guide already. I think it's in, this is kind of why I want to bring up this question. Uh, tier breakdowns, I think, are important. Yeah. All right. So Vic is in a tier of his own. Uh, I think that there's a lot of consensus out there that there's another tier of two to three scoot henderson brandon miller and that those guys seem to be in that range i'd say like four maybe to seven there seems to be a little bit of interchangeability as the next tier and then the back half of the lottery like eight to 14 would be that next clump of prospects but as you're talking about for the right team fit you can probably pluck a player up a tier for based on what that uh, franchise would need on court. Mm -hmm. Mine goes, I have a tier from three through five, from six through nine, and then from 10 to 16, I believe. So I actually do think there's, there are some breakoffs in this three to 13 range, like, pretty substantially like i i was thinking about this earlier from detroit's perspective right like if i was detroit and i was considered considering trading down i would want to get i would want to make sure that i finish this draft with one of the thompson twins jaris walker uh taylor Hendricks, or cam whitmore to do that I probably wouldn't want to go lower than eighth. And if I was going lower than eighth, I would need like immense value to be able to do that. So it's hard. Um, I think that, I think it's not quite as interchangeable as what people think, I guess is what I would say. Sure. Um, yeah, how could the Lakers trade up for Kobe Bufkin? I'm a Laker fan and would love to have another Kobe. Uh, who could want what for a higher pick? I think it's going to be really hard. I think that like you'd have to find a team that really likes Jared Vanderbilt, I think. And you'd probably have to move Jared Vanderbilt to be able to do that. Um, and I don't know how excited they would be to do that necessarily. Um, and I don't know that I would even recommend it. But if you really, truly thought Kobe Bufkin was like a perfect, you know, uh, long-term player next to Austin Reeves and, you know, could really help you by year two uh, in the NBA, maybe even by the end of year one. I mean, there, there's a case for it, at least, I think. Yeah, I just I don't see the the Lakers wanting to add more youth at the sacrifice of veterans just with the window that LeBron has left. I don't see that being the case. Yeah. Um, here you go. We didn't, we didn't really talk about this. Uh, can Kobe Brown defend in space against wings? Do you think the shot improvement is real? Any other reasons not to love him? Uh, yeah, I do think he can defend against wings in space. Maybe not the smaller, quicker ones, but I think he's fine against more physically stout guys. I guess I would, I would put it. I do buy the shot improvement. I think he's literally fixed one thing in his mechanics that allow him to be a little bit better, which is where his elbow kind of goes and his follow through doesn't flail out anymore. Uh, and no, there are no other reasons not to love him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really quite like him. I'm maybe a little bit more concerned 
uh, than you are on the movement in sure. space. Um, but I, I actually do buy the shot. I think the shot prep is really, really good now. And I think that even though he has the elbow flare on the jumper, I think that it will probably iron itself out as he continues to grow and mature and age. So, so let me say one last thing on that one. It's not that I'm not concerned about it. It's that I'm not concerned enough to drop him out of having a first round grade, right? Like yeah. there are even players within the top four in this draft have legitimate concerns that you could, you, everybody needs to be worried about in some regard. Are they going to fix? Are they going to be changed? For me with Kobe Brown, it's just that's not the fatal flaw that would knock him out of a rotation in my eyes. Uh, where would Matas Buzelis rank in this year's class if he was eligible? And, and for what it's worth, I will have Matas like somewhere in the top three or four of next year's uh, mock. Uh, I'll, maybe I'll wait until I run that on Friday uh, to say who I have at number one. I wouldn't have Matas at one, though. Maybe eight or nine. Seven, yeah. eight, nine, somewhere in that range. Yeah, uh, I, I would have Modest. Uh, I think at like nine or ten right now. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I would not have him as high as a Sar Thompson would be my immediate response. So maybe ten. Okay. Yeah, I'd put him right around that Taylor Hendricks range. That's that's kind of a good ballpark guy for me. Speaking of Taylor Hendricks, uh, Gaelic Elander asks Leonard Miller or Taylor Hendricks for Oklahoma City. No, Hendricks, by far. Uh, yeah, e- even as the uh, the biggest Leonard Miller proponent, uh, Taylor Hendricks, because uh, they, they just they I'm sure would love to have a shooter like Taylor Hendricks uh, that can also be a weak side rim protector, and they have all the ball handling they need with guys like Shea, Jalen Williams, you know, uh, Josh Giddy certainly. Uh, Chet Holmgren can also handle the ball. Taylor Hendricks, like I'd be trying to move up if I was Oklahoma City for Taylor Hendricks. I, I would be aggressively pursuing Taylor Hendricks if I was Oklahoma City. Who, who do you like better in Oklahoma City, Hendricks or Jarris Walker? Hendricks, actually. Uh, let me think about that more. Hendricks because of the three-point shooting, I think. Interesting. Because Jalen Williams, Williams is a little bit more of a – uh reluctant shooter from three right now josh giddy is a little bit more of a reluctant shooter it's not shay's first choice um so i I would want the shooter for oklahoma city right now interesting and i look at it the other way i'd go jaris because i love the defensive versatility that he brings in order to protect chet holmgren that jaris is stronger bodied in a way that can cross match where you can tailor make your rotational matchups on defense more so around chet uh, from Scow's Roar, do you think the fact that Chris Paul only has $15 million of his salary guaranteed made this whole thing palatable to Washington more than some people are thinking? Just to be clear, uh, to do this deal, Phoenix is going to have to guarantee something like $25 million for Chris Paul. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not a money thing. Uh, the, they're going to have to guarantee like a substantial amount of money to make this work unless they involve a third team. And they might not have to guarantee as much depending on the cap space that that third team may or may not have, or, you know, depending on the structure of the deal, but they're going to have to guarantee some money to Chris Paul in all likelihood in order to make this happen. Uh, So Imran Haji asks, what has the Intel been on Charlotte's front? If any about Scoot and Miller, I saw you and John Wasserman changed it both to Scoot. So to be clear, I didn't change anything. (laughs) I haven't done a mock draft since after the lottery 
and I had scooted it too uh, then. And all, everything I've been told is like Charlotte has not made a decision yet. And they're bringing in, it's been reported now, like this is very public, that they're bringing in Scoot and Miller this week and doing another workout and, you know, having Michael Jordan watch them and everything. I don't think there's been a decision made at this point. Like, I, I think that people got a little bit ahead of the game. Like, I, I don't think it was like a horse race where like Brandon Miller was way out ahead and then Scoot closed the gap. And now it's like a toss up kind of thing. I think Charlotte, Charlotte's front office, first and foremost, does not really leak much. And second, like, I think that this has just always been an open debate. Like, I, I don't think it's been like a done deal one way or another the whole way. So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, I, I have no intel in the world of, of this sort of thing. But uh, what I will say is that if the Charlotte front office is doing their job, then nobody really should know where they're favoring or, or what's going on here. I think they're doing a really good job of keeping this tight-lipped and keeping all their options available or at least having the ability to control the rest of the draft board. Uh, from Athan Jordan, uh, would you make the Pacers uh, OG and Anobi trade for the seventh pick like what is being rumored or draft Jairus Walker? Uh, Adam? Oh, you go for OG if you're me. So from a talent perspective, I agree. OG and Anobi has one year left on his contract. And because OG is who he is, um, he is very difficult to gauge in terms of what his goals are in his career. And I don't mean that negatively. I just mean that as like a, he's a very quiet guy. And like, I don't, I don't know what his moves, like what his plans are. And like, is he going to value the money? Is he going to value security? Is he going to value winning? I, I frankly have no idea on that. I would not make this deal uh, if only because I would be way too worried about him leaving after one year and you get nothing for the seventh pick, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that is a concern. But I, look, where did he go to college again? Like, he went to Indiana. Like I think there might be uh, some backdoor ways to try to figure out if he'd be happy resigning there. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Let's see here. Do we have any other really good ones? Uh, uh, let's see. Still going through. What would you give up to move to number two to get Scoot if you were the Rockets? I've always said I'm not the, the greatest at constructing these fake trades or figuring out what is like logical even for each side. But I'd give up something fairly meaningful in order to do so. Yeah. I'd give up Jalen Green. Oh. Ooh. With four. Ooh. And, and look, I love uh, – like I think Jalen Green's really, really good. Like truly, I think Jalen Green has all-star upside still. Uh, I Scoot is the guy that I think you go get essentially for what it's worth. I don't think the Rockets would do that by any stretch, but if I was them, I would do that. Yeah. That's a lot, man. But 
you I could know. you could convince me. Yeah. yeah, Scoot's that guy. Scoot is the kind of player that I want to try to build around. Yeah. Um, from Scott Schmitz, what do you think of Adam Flagler or Omari Moore for the Wolves at fifty three? Hmm. I like. I think Flagler would be solid there. A little more shooting in the backcourt is is never necessarily a bad thing. Um, yep. I don't know you're an Omari Moore guy. Why don't you talk about him for a bit? I love Omari Moore. Uh, sure, sounds great. Take him. <laughs> <laughs> no, like I, I like Omari Moore. Uh, I like the fact that he can really handle. I, th- I like that he's a gamer. I think he's a dribble pass shoot guy, and those guys are very hard to find at 53. Um, Defends reasonably well, real size at six foot five. I know he didn't play well at the combine, but like that's they played him as a wing, and I think he's more of an on ball player. Um, yeah, I, I like Omari Moore a lot. Uh, at that point, you're talking about a two way, so I, uh, yeah, sure, Omari yeah. Moore two way. Let's do yeah. it. And I like him a little Omari less than that. Uh, um, <laughs> um, is there anything else, anything else here that I want to dive into? Is there anything you see? Maybe, maybe Space Orb 9 finishing with, what team do you think is most likely to trade up for Scoot slash Miller at three since the Blazers will likely trade the pick? I don't think the Blazers are likely to trade. Uh, how, how do I want to phrase this? I would not go as far as to say the Blazers are likely to trade the pick. I think they will listen and continue to see what's out there. And if something presents itself, they will do it or could do it. I don't think they are like itching to move this pick in order to like get veteran help for Damian Lillard is kind of the way I would put it. Um, What team do I think is most likely to move up? I think the one that could do it is the Pelicans. Uh, If Scoot Henderson does get to three, I think the Pelicans are the team that has the best ability to do so, maybe is Mm. the way to say it. Mm. Mm. And Toronto is another team I would uh, have my eye on here as well. Yeah. Um, Athan Jordan asks, would I trade Ant for Scoot Henderson straight up? That's a great question. I would not. I would just keep Anthony Edwards. Yeah. I tend to err on the side of like what we've seen before, just having a little bit more value. And like Anthony Edwards has been a, a dude in the NBA the last yeah. two years. He, he's shown too much, I think, to where you could do that. Yeah. Um, that's a good one, though. I think that's a really good one. Uh, can you make spins do the all NBA starter depth fringe breakdown that I did the other day? Uh, did oh you do you watch no. or listen to the athletic NBA show where uh, Alex Spears created the worst game I've ever been a part of um, and made me go through and pick like players in this draft and past drafts? Yeah, I think I saw that exercise. You had to pick like five guys from 2020 and 21 who are all NBA and a couple, something. Was that the one? Yeah. So statistically, Alex figured out that on average, there are four all star slash fringe all stars yeah. yeah. that are taken in the lottery, three starters, four role players, and three guys that are like out of the NBA, essentially. Okay. And this is uh, the lottery. 
This is the lottery. So Adam, <sighs> pick three, pick four guys that as we look back will be uh, in the uh, all NBA slash fringe all-star conversation. Who asked this question? Alex Spears and uh, Andrew. No, no, no on, on our chat tonight. Oh, uh, the activist. Okay. Well, fuck you, the activist. <laughs> um, let me see. All right. Th- so three all uh, like fringe all stars. Four. Four. You get four. Four. Okay. Vic and Scoot. Clearly yep. those two guys. I'll go Brandon Miller. Okay. Yeah, I'll go Amen Thompson. Okay. I flipped, uh, I believe, Whitmore for Miller. Three starters. Three starters. Anthony Black. Okay. Jairus Walker. Okay. Cam Whitmore. Okay. Four role players. Kaysen Wallace. Taylor Hendricks. Okay. Oh, Kaysen Wallace, Taylor Hendricks, Grady Dick, Derek Lively. Okay, and three busts. Okay, that would be for me Asar Thompson. I guess Kula Bali and Hood Shafino. Okay, yeah. It's pretty close to what I had for what it's worth. Yeah, I had Kaysen uh, as a bust just because I had to pick someone and I have Kaysen ranked 14th and that <laughs> yeah. felt like the fairest way to do it. How miserable was that game? Adam made, or Alex, I called him Adam like yeah, multiple I, times because I was so well, mad I, at him. I heard. I heard. I'm glad that I can have uh, that lasting impact on you, Samuel. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't even thinking of you when I did it. Like it was funny. <laughs> I just, like, was so mad at him that I was just like, I'm calling him by the wrong name now. Yeah, that's, um, that's a fun exercise, though. That's actually really important. Yeah, he made me do four of them. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah, that was miserable. That was very miserable. Uh, but that's what they do. They ask me uh, great questions every time, and I love the Athletic NBA show. Having said that, I'm taking six days off the Athletic NBA show because of that uh, response. Um. Yeah, I think that's all I've got. We've gone for an hour, 50 minutes. Adam, tell the people uh, where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on in your life. Yeah, well, thank you again for having me on, Sam. We're here. It's the final week, and we've got a lot going on between now and the draft. I'm trying to get a million, and I mean a million, final scouting report videos up on YouTube and on my sub stack. So keep your eyes open for those. Twitter account, at the box and one underscores, where you'll see links to everything. I uh, got one mock draft that's actually going to be premiering on YouTube in the next 15 minutes, probably my final one for the cycle. And then a really cool video coming out in a couple of days, my 10 favorite sleepers or guys who I would think outperform their draft stock in this year's draft class. Yeah, no, I love it. I think that's great. Um, I will have a bunch of words coming tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So yeah, keep go to the athletic. Uh, we're going to have, I think a sale starting tomorrow. So I will make sure and promote that quite a bit. Uh, It's a great opportunity to go and subscribe to The Athletic and to keep me employed over there. That'd be great. Um, What else will I have? What else will I have? 
tomorrow I'll be podcasting, I believe, with James Edwards. The one day before the draft, I will also be doing my typical uh, bets on the NBA draft uh, thing that I do with somebody based on the lines that exist uh, for NBA draft. I love doing that. I think it's so fun. Uh, I think that it's just like the best piece of content that you can do uh, with the NBA draft, essentially. Uh, This year's lines, they've gotten better. Uh, Odds makers have gotten better at making these lines over the years. Uh, There is no over under 20 for Bruno Fernando uh, this year, which (laughs) uh, for betters is disappointing, I'm sure. So there are a couple that I'm intrigued by, but I think that by and large odds makers have gotten drastically better at this so we will uh we will talk about that maybe on wednesday i might do that 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 tends to be the wednesday podcast um before the draft so we will do that um yeah it's all got and adam it's great to see you until next time we'll talk soon bye (laughs) 